Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast. Welcome back. This is part two of the Rick Fox special on the Decibel Geek podcast. You heard plenty in part one. I'm not going to bore you with any more of my crap, so here's part two. Enjoy. Broadcasting from the rock and metal mecca, Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Decibel Geek podcast. We left off talking about the uh, the band in, I think it was New Jersey called Aggressor. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So how did how did you get involved with that group? Well, I built a pretty nice following when I was with the E Walker band. So you know, a lot of people knew who I was in, the, in that club circuit. And hi, Taurus is hi. Oh hi. <laughs> I think the girl I was dating at the time met and became friends with one of the other club goers and this other girl who said that her boyfriend was a guitar player or something like that. And, and right when I had left E. Walker, I guess they hung out or something and, and we started talking amongst themselves about, you know, what I've done and who I've been with. And, and she says, well, he just did a song for, uh, for uh, Shrapnel Records for Mike, one of Mike Varney's early uh, U.S. metal uh, albums. And he had a song called Aggressor. His name was Dave Ferrara. And uh, she said, maybe we should get them together, you know, and, and they can put a band together. So we met, as far as I can remember, we met. We said, yeah, let's let's uh, let's put something together. And he says, I'd like to do, like, you know, a lot of bands say that they do heavy metal top 40 stuff in the clubs. But, like, let's pick the best heavy metal. I said, okay. You know, and that worked. And, and we went around and looked for a drummer. And the guy we had at first worked okay. But then we wound up getting somebody that he recommended who was a little bit more dependable Singers were pretty hard to come by because all the good guys were taken, but we found a guy, and we went to one of the clubs that I had played with when I was in Walker, and we pitched him on, on you know the fact that I got a following, we could bring in the following into the club, and we're doing heavy metal stuff, and he goes, you know, I'm not really happy about the band that you came out of. He goes, but I'd like to give you guys a chance. So we got booked into this club called After Dark, just over the New York State, New Jersey borderline, and... So we were getting people from Jersey, but also people from upstate New York area as well, Suffern, things like that. So we were doing like Scorpions, Judas Priest, Rush, all the, you know, Michael Schenker, all the, the best heavy metal, Van Halen, you know, hard rock. So we were building a following, you know, we, we did very well. We, were, uh, we had a really good reception from the crowd. They really liked the stuff we were playing. And at about that time, a day job, I was working back in Manhattan in the village in this uh, in a clothing store, I think it was, and, and uh, some kids came walking in who were vacationing from California. They came to New York to see Twisted Sister playing at some festival and some other bands. 
and said, hey, you kind of look like this guy we know out in, in Los Angeles. You kind of got the same kind of hair and look and everything. And, and you're a musician, right? I'm like, yeah. And he said, well, what do you do? I said, I'm a bass player. I said, oh, that's funny. He's looking for a bass player. I said, I hardly think I can see myself going to Los Angeles, dropping what I'm doing here, you know, you know, just to audition for a bass position. I mean, you know, it's a little outlandish, I would think. And we got to talking about stuff, and they said, well, we, you know, we're real big KISS fans. And I said, oh, well. You're talking to one of the people that got to watch Kiss form from the ground up. They were like, that right there. It's like, please raise your jaws back to the original uh, upright position and lock them in place because these guys were big, big Kiss fans. So, you know, uh, meeting somebody who knew Kiss personally was almost as good as meeting the band themselves. Talked a little more, and, and I said, well, I don't have any tapes or anything on me of what I what I do. I mean, we're playing cover bands here. We don't We don't make audition tapes, you know, to hand to people or demos. You know, everybody knows Top 40, Top 40, Hard Rock and whatever, Metal. And, and I had a picture on me w in my bag, and I said, here, give him this. And I had a phone number on it he could contact me at. And, and I thought they were going to come over to my apartment later in Jersey because they wanted to look at all the Kiss stuff I had. And at that point, they would have seen all my pictures that I took of Kiss at the Fillmore East and, and at Coventry and all the clubs that I, I followed them around at, but they never wound up showing up. Two weeks later, I start getting a phone call from a guy named Blackie Lawless who is the guy that they were talking about. You know, eventually, when I got to meet and see the guy, I, I, they said, you kind of look like him. And there's no resemblance whatsoever between he and I. So that was their personal uh, take on it, I guess. Meanwhile, I was still doing the club stuff with Aggressor. So Blackie and I started talking you know, on the phone. And, and I said, well, you know, he says, yeah, we're looking for a bass player. And you know, I'm from New York originally myself. And, and I said, well, I don't have a demo tape because I'm, you know, I'm doing the club stuff. I said, but I do have, like, advertisements and, you know, uh, things I've done in the papers, articles written about me, things like that. So I, I put together a little promo pack and sent that to him. At the same time, he sent me a demo tape of what he had and, and some pictures and stuff from what he's done with Sister. Um, I, that, that tape was, the you know, some of the original stuff before I recorded with them. And I liked it. I, li I liked what I heard. It was, didn't sound like anything else I knew. It sounded a little like Alice Cooper-ish, but other than that, you know, it sounded pretty cool. So we talked more about, you know, him trying to convince me to come out to L.A., and he says, I'll tell you what, we'll pay your way out to L.A. for the for the plane ticket, and you can stay here at our place, my place, and come out and audition for the band. If it works, fine, and we'll talk about it from there. And if it doesn't, then, uh, you know, you go back. And I said, okay. Around what year was this? This was in winter of 81 into winter of 82. Look around January-ish, I think. So then you, they flew you out to uh, L.A. for the audition. Yeah. Uh, I wound up getting, a, I got a gift as a, a, from the girl I was with at the time, got me a new bass guitar case. So, you know, an anvil case, because my regular kit case was broken. So, you know, so it, my, my bass would survive the trip. And some clothes, and, and I think uh, maybe a couple of amp heads I brought with me or something like that, because they, they were kind of sketchy on, on gear, and I, I couldn't figure out. Either you guys got gear for me to play through or what? I don't know. I mean, I tore up the cushions from a couple of couches, from a couch I had, to, to use the foam to wrap the amps, the, the amp heads, and, and put them on dollies or something. I wound up getting all this gear on the plane and, and went out there. And, and they were very specific about asking me how tall I was. And I, and I said, well, why? And he says, because everybody in the band's really tall. I went, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm six foot. You know, give me a, you know, a pair of boots with heels on them, so you got an inch or two. Like that. So, and then I found out why when I got off the plane and I'm walking down the, the ramp in Los Angeles at LAX, and I and I see you know everybody's about the same height, and off in the distance I see this head with black hair about a foot taller than everybody else in the crowd, coming towards me like like a like like a rock in in, in the water out in the water you know, but it's coming towards me, and then I see well it's it's Blackie, and I see why he's asking me about the height, and I'm wearing boots with heels, and even as tall as I am, he's still a little taller than I was. So he had Randy and Tony with him, you know, and, and I met all the guys and uh and then uh, they put they waited for my gear. We put everything in, in uh Randy's van and Randy took it over to the studio and I went with Blackie to, to his house. And and that's where we stayed up till I don't know, wall hours just talking about stuff. What were your initial impressions of Blackie Lawless? Uh seemed like a nice guy. You see you know, he's funny. I, I I could see the little bit of the New York humor and New York attitude in him. But he'd been in, in L.A. for a while, so he's kind of, you know, he's lost a little bit of the New York edge, in, in my opinion. But he, I guess he was trying to make me feel as comfortable as possible without going too much, because in case the audition didn't work, 
you don't want to have to feel too bad about it, I guess. I don't know. Well, and I, you know the whole story because I, I've read a little bit here and there over the years of Blackie basically trying to like basically erase you from the history of the group. What what is that all about? Well, let's see, let me try and put this in perspective. Uh, I obviously passed the audition. I wound up writing and re- recording with them for about four months, and then one day he you know he comes up to me and says, uh, you know, it's actually there was a couple of days where he wasn't talking to me. He was like really cold, really distant. He wouldn't answer more than he had to. He wouldn't uh, extend any conversations. He just, you know, w- was pretty much one, one or two word answers. And I figured something's up, and I don't know what, well, I don't know what happened. I don't know what did I do anything. I, I was like out of the loop. He wasn't talking to me. Mm-hmm. And he finally comes up to me and he said, you know, says we we got to talk. You know, it's one of those the, the, that that famous conversation with those words. We need to talk. First time I ever heard that. And he sits yeah. down with me and he tells me it's not working out. He says, Tony Fields is not working out. Randy Fields is not working out. And, you know, I'm afraid we're just going to have to cut you loose. And mm-hmm. you are not to possess any materials that, that shows that you were in the band. Uh, you're not to have any photos, tapes, anything. And I, I couldn't figure out why. Uh, that just didn't seem normal to me. I mean, if you did something, you accomplished something, why would you be prevented or not allowed to have a... a, a copy of your work to go with you, you see. So when he when he went out for a while, when he wasn't home, uh, I grabbed the negatives from the pictures that uh, Don Atkins Jr. took of us, and I went up to a printer, and I had some pictures made, and then I, when I came back, and he found out that I had, he would, he flipped his top, he went, he went ballistic off the map, yelling and screaming. I'm like, what the, what the fuck are you yelling at me about? Well, what, what, what is the big deal about me not possessing any he goes, I, you have to have, give me all that stuff back. It belongs to the band. And, and I, well, I, I think I gave him one or two of the pictures that I had just to, to appease him. And I, the rest I just kept to myself. And luckily, th- thankfully, I did, I did so for a, a good reason. Because uh, I think he was afraid that he didn't want to have to explain anything later on. And he, he wanted to confiscate all, all proof that I was in the band. Well, it's just it's just such a switch. I mean, like I'm trying to. Did he was he trying to rip you off on something, or is there, I, I just can't figure that out. You know, like why why suddenly flip out about because they Wasp hadn't really hit big at that point, so it's just like is this just an ego out of control? You know, I I wasn't in his brain and he wouldn't let me in, so I I, I don't know what he was thinking about why. Uh, it's just in retrospect, I'm thinking he just it appears to me it's, it explains itself that. He didn't want to have to explain that I was in the band or have to prove or fight to prove one way or the other. And when I put out an ad in Music Connection magazine, I said that I was I played with Wasp, you know, and, and he didn't react to that. You know, I wound up getting taken into Steeler after auditioning for other bands, you know. And when we, uh, we, we opened for Vandenberg at the Roxy, we did two shows that night. And who comes backstage between sets? Well, Vandenberg was on, was Nikki Six, and with him in tow is Blackie. Now, Blackie is acting like a completely different person. And, and Nikki's like, oh, congratulating me, and it's great to see you've done well. Look, you got into one of the top bands in L.A. He goes, dude, that's so great for you. I'm, I'm happy for you. If you ever need anything, let me know. You know, and, and then, uh, you know, all of a sudden, Blackie turns around in a change of, of, you know, shocking change of attitude and change of heart. He's like, yeah, you know, uh, I want to. You know, let's be friends. Let's kind of forget about what happened. And you know, if uh, anything ever, you know, you need me for anything, or you could invite, you want to call me up, or anything I can do to help, uh, just let me know. You know, and, and I'm thinking, this is not the Blackie that I remember when he left, told me to leave the band. You know, and and I recall that when when he did that to me, I called up Randy and Tony both, and I said, he, he fired me from the band. Do you have, do you have any information on this? They said, no, we, he didn't say anything to us about it. And I said, well, is there anything you can do to talk to him about? They said, no, he'll fire us too. He's, he's, he's in control of the band that strongly. doesn't matter who we are or what we do in the band. He can always fire us and find somebody else to replace us. So that kind of gave me an idea of what kind of power he wields over those who are in, in a band with him. It's not so much about the band. It's about him driving the whole thing, and everybody else is just expendable as, as per needed. So now being in Steeler, it was a whole different change of attitude, and and that's when Nikki, you know, and I we went and he goes, come here, and he, I follow him into the men's room. He locks the door. I'm like, what are you doing? And that's when we started to talk about the business. And I said, well, what's Blackie doing with you? What do you what do you let him hang out with you? 
And he goes, oh, you know, he likes to think he can pick up girls, so he knows I'm doing well now. So I keep him around for kicks and laughs. And Blackie's banging on the door going, hey, man, what's going on here? Come on, guys, let me in, let me in. And he's like, shut up, old man. And he's laughing. He was totally, Mickey was totally mocking on Blackie. Wow. He goes, don't believe anything he says. The guy's like, you know, he's a liar. Hi, this is Nick Fury, and you're listening to the Best Movie Podcast. Talk a little bit about Steelers. This was a group that, uh, pound for pound with talent. I mean, you guys had pretty much everything going for you. If, for people that don't know about Steelers, give me a quick little rundown of the group. Okay, uh, I saw them at the Roxy with their original lineup after they had just come from, I don't know, uh, Phoenix, I guess, by way of, of Nashville or something. Or Nashville by way of Phoenix. I was there at the Roxy with Eric Carr. And, and we were watching them, and, and we were remarking about how red Ron's face was getting when he was hitting those notes. But he says, God, this guy is... I, I, we were putting our fingers in our ears. And that's how, how high of a pitch this guy was singing. And they were they were rocking hard, but they just... Pound for pound, compared to the other bands in L.A., they looked like they were from out of town. Quite often, you'll get guys who are from a different state somewhere in, in America who haven't been exposed to really good... Bands with really good stage presence. Consequently, the moves that they do on stage don't always come off like looking as cool. It looks kind of awkward, you know, or kind of goofy or whatever. I'm not making fun of the guys. I'm just saying that there was nothing remarkable about their stage presence except for Ron. You know, Ron was the stage presence in Steeler, period, hands down. The other guys were good. They were solid, but there was just nothing, no visual appeal. And then uh, I put the Ed and Music Connection after, after some, you know, being at a Wasp for a few months. And... Uh, I got the call, and, and uh, Ron Keel calls me up, and he says, yeah, well, I'm Ron Keel, the band Steeler. I'm like, the guys that play the Roxy? Yeah, that's the same band. And I was like, wow, this guy's calling me up? This, this is cool. And we made an agreement to meet, and we met, and I went over to, uh, to the, the studio where they had all their stuff. It was a really, really, really bad area of L.A. Like, they were the only white guys in the neighborhood. And they had what looked like it was two or three storefronts gutted out on the inside, and one they were all open within each other, you know. And one of the rooms it was a, a it was a rehearsal room, and the other were the offshoot rooms of where each guy had a corner where they would sleep at. It was roach infested. It was really awful. But I walked in, and there was no gear. There was nothing, no PA, no lights, no amps, nothing. Just Ron sitting there with his flying V, you know. And, and he says, well, I, uh, I had to make some decisions in the band. It wasn't easy, and uh, I wanted to start from scratch. Um, I really looked around and liked what I saw as far as how the other bands were structured out here. I wanted to try and put together the same thing. He goes, you obviously, now that you walk in the room, he goes, you have a great look. He goes, you got one of the most, the greatest looks I've ever seen of a, of a musician as far as L.A. is concerned. And I said, well, I'm from New York. You know, and Angel has always been a, a, an influence on me as far as the, the image-wise. And he goes, yeah, you kind of look like the guitar player in Angel. And I said, yeah, I get that a lot. But, you know, I said, I knew Kiss. I knew, you know, Angel. I knew all these bands. And they're like, he goes, oh, you knew Kiss? So, again, I repeated my story of watched, of telling him how I watched Kiss form from the ground up, you know, before Ace was in the band. And that, Ron was a big Kiss fan. So that immediately broke the ice and leveled the playing field. Yeah. Gave me an original demo of their songs. And I told me to learn them, which I did. I made a couple of adaptations in the bass parts here and there. I went back and I went over the songs with him, just he and I on guitar, and, and he liked where it was going. He said, I have a new drummer. He's, he'll be flying in from Texas in the next couple of days. If, actually, if you could do me a favor, because I don't have a car, if you could you could go pick him up. And, and I used somebody else's car at the time. Uh, and I went and picked him up from the airport and brought him back. And then the, so he goes, oh, you're, you're the new guy we're trying out? And that was Mark, of course, Mark Edwards. And I said, yeah, and, and Mark was very, very, very particular about what he was looking for, you know, as far as, you know, for the bass, bass players, and, and how that rhythm section would lock in. And discriminating, okay. Mark had very discriminating tastes about how he would like the rhythm section to go. So we began rehearsing, the three of us, Ron, myself, and Mark. And, uh, you know, uh, it started to sound like it was coming together. Ron was at least was pleased. Uh, Mark thought there was some points here or there that needed to be worked out between he and I, which, of course, I agreed to. And, and to this day, and, and always, I will say that I owe so much to, to Mark for teaching me more about how to listen to, to what a drummer's doing and, and really, you know, the essence of timing 
and building a solid rhythm section between bass and drums is so integral that I owe that to Mark, you know. Even though I came from, from years of playing in cover bands, what I did, with, what I learned with Mark was, was uh, very outstanding. You know, and then uh, we needed a guitar player. And that's when Ron started, uh, Ron contacted Barney and, and Mike Barney and through his column in, in Guitar Player. And Barney says, I've got a tape with two guys, two tapes with, with these two guitar players. I'd like you to listen to them. And then, you know, we, uh, we liked what Ingve sounded like. And then we got on the phone, a three-way conversation, and Ingve was all about wanting to come to America and join Steeler. So enthusiastic and excited about it, motivated. Yeah. You know, we thought this this would help really put Steeler uh, notches above where they were when they first came to L.A. Yeah. And and what was what was Ingve like back there in those early days? Well, that's to start with. Well, like I said, on the phone call, he was like all about wanting to come here. I can't wait to be here. I love, want to play with you guys. I love the the, this, the music that you have, and I, you know, uh, there's really nothing for me here in Sweden. I can't advance. Uh, he was working on something on some CBS affiliate in Sweden, and they were trying to control what he was doing. So Barney arranged for him to come to America. And we went to the airport. We met him, and, and we see him coming on off the off the, the plane, and he's walking down the, the, the whole hallway there. And I got the impression it was Ted Nugent. Nothing against Ted, but there was just an air of superiority, almost an air of arrogance to, to, the, to his way, just his body language. And it's like, oh, so this is L.A.? Wow, cool, man. It's quite cool, actually. Yeah, it's, I'm Ingve, and doing the hair flip thing, and you know, and like, hey, so we got a star already, you know, <laughs> like that. And even even as far back as then, he was still acting that way. Well, he was a star in Sweden, I guess, on a local level. So he's going to bring that with him. You know, wants to make a good impression. And we got back to the to the Steeler Mansion, as it was dubbed, being anything but a mansion. <laughs> and and the look of surprise and shock on his face was more than mine when he walked in. You know, he was expecting to see, you know, a nice, clean, you know, uh, environment where, where, you know, uh, where people live nicely, and, and it's like roaches and just bad area, and, and he, that right there, you know, he was not happy. <laughs> <laughs> a real culture shock for him. But uh, I, I'd have to say, right from the get-go, musically, him and Ron started knocking heads. I mean, look, it's Ron's sandbox, it's Ron's songs. Don't buck the system. Learn the learn the songs and put your best foot forward. Don't be trying to change the whole you know the whole format here. You know, and me and Mark are looking at each other and like, we, all right, we we got a virtuoso here, and you know, Ron's not looking for virtuosity, I think, in every song, but he's looking for somebody who's going to bring something to the table that's going to accentuate the song, not not overwhelm it. So. You know, I mean, it was it was head knocking like from, from day one, and, and it got to a point where we were getting frustrated. Ron was getting frustrated, and and he wound up advertising and and still continuing to audition other guitar players while Ingve was there living with us, like right under his nose. We were auditioning guitar players, and it was very uncomfortable. It was just a lot of tension in the air. At, at some point, I guess Ingve saw what the options were, and he said, "All right, I'll play. I'll play along." I'll, I'll, whatever you want, you know. And he became more of a play, you know, team player. But of course, being Ingve as Ingve is, you know, doing his thing within the songs, you know. And he cut loose during the solos, you know. And 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 I'm like, okay, well, I was just kind of happy to be where I was, you know. So uh, and lucky. So uh, uh, we just did the, the best we could with what we had to work with. And and I guess at some point, Ron was happy. But again. You hear the stories about, you know, after Steeler broke up about how there was tension in the band or there was pulling in different directions. I'd have to say, for the most part, there was some truth to that. And I think a lot of the, the pulling was between Ron and Ingve. Well, was Ron's uh, ego as as out of control and as big as Ingve's? Because I, I hear him now. I don't. I didn't. I didn't. You know, talk. I didn't see much of him talking back then. But now he comes off like such a very level-headed guy. But I mean, how was his ego at that time? Well, we all had egos. I mean, let's let's face it. We all had a certain amount of, of pride in who we were and what we were doing and what we were representing, and what we'd done. So we all had something we brought to the table. So we all had a you know a bit of an ego, I guess, and, and to some more than others in some regard or whatever. I'm not saying Ron had more than Ingve, but there was definitely a clash between understanding who was running the project and where it was going. 
and who had final say on everything. So sometimes the ego's got to take a back seat and, and for the, the greater good of, of the whole project. I, I think because we've all had so many years to look back at what could have been and what didn't happen and, and what actually was able to happen with what we had at, for that short amount of time, I think a lot of a lot, we've all learned a lot of lessons. Uh, I don't know if, if, if that can be applied to today. I don't know if the understanding and reasonability would still would, would override the ego. I don't know. I can't speak for other people's egos because you know, everybody is who they are, and we wouldn't know unless we were all in the same room together and played again and see how it felt. But I know Ingve would not take a step into that room, and it would just be like, oh no, no not again. And again, you know, Ingve has his personal beefs with us. You know, he felt that I was never a strong player. But you know, it's funny when when we in between Steelers stuff. A real good icebreaker to level the playing field was I, I bust out starting to do Deep Purple songs. And, you know, from Yngwie was a, a Richie Blackmore fanatic. So, you know, we would do Deep Purple songs or UFO songs or, you know, other stuff that he knew, you know, Scorpion stuff. He knew all of Uli Roth's leads, you know. So that kind of stuff would, would, would level the playing field a little bit. Like I said, break the ice. The only time Yngwie was not acting like an arrogant, you know, know-it-all uh, maestro is when you talked about things that were non-music related that he was interested in, like like UFOs. He liked witchcraft. He liked uh, dark things. He liked mysterious things. Stuff like that would he would be like a kid, you know. He wouldn't be like Ingve, you know, the, the, the condescending guy. He would be, uh, you know, just a regular kind of a guy, regular Joe guy. But as soon as we get back into music, he's like he's all about being in charge, you know. And and you can't have two guys in charge in Steeler, you know. As far as ego thing, yeah, I, I, like I said, we we all had it some more than others. But, you know, when you see that there's somebody in a band, it's, it's, you know who's in charge, you, you gotta, you gotta step back because you, you don't want to knock heads. Rubbing our last two brain cells together. This is a Decibel Geek Podcast. Kind of the clash of two those together, kind of the, re- the reason that Steeler didn't work out, or, or what, what ended up to the leading up to the end of that? Well, while we were doing the shows, it was a blast. I mean, that was the best place to be at, at the time. It was the most fun. God knows it put me on the map and gave me some, some final, gave me some validation and, and, and vindication. of. We didn't, New York, we didn't have this word poser. It was okay in New York for you to look like you were a rock guy, even if you weren't in a band. We didn't have that word poser back then. That, I think that started out in Los Angeles, you know, amongst the, the, the jealous guys, you know, and, and the people who wanted to be somebody who weren't and or couldn't do anything to prove who they were. I don't know, but being at Steeler was, was that was the best thing at, at the time, and the shows were great, and, and, and uh, God, we got to open for Quiet Riot, which was a blast at, at Perkins Palace. It was like beyond capacity. That, that really helped put us over the top. Uh, we p- did Perkins Palace a couple of times. We did... Uh, Country Club, we opened for Hughes Thrall, we did open, we supported uh, Vandenberg. We were about to open uh, some shows for Judas Priest up, up northern California, which would really put the feather in our cap. But it, at that time, we found out Priest was having problems within their management, and they, they canceled the shows or something, so that didn't work out. Uh, but we did shows up in California when we were recording the album, uh, rumor got around that Ingve was was in the San Francisco Bay Area, even though we were like well north of it. We were up in Katati, up in Wine Country, you know, at, at, uh, at the, re- the recording studio doing the album. And demand, popular demand, had uh, one of the clubs there in, in, in San Francisco made us do a show. The, the, the Ingve fans were clamoring for it, and I think it was, it was called the Old Waldorf, and they had a thing called Metal Mondays or something like that, and they they forced the club to contact us to come down and do a show in the middle of a recording session. We did that. We went down and did the show, and it was just like like piranha and, and meat in the in, in a piranha tank. It was frenzy. It was hot. It was sweaty. It was rock and roll. It was mob. I mean, the only place we had a chance to breathe was the dressing room because it was like fans everywhere. You know, it was like, like being inside an ant, an ant colony or a beehive. Uh, things like that were, were, were the fun things to look forward to and, and to do. As, as we started getting six months or so down the line, I don't know, just the vibe got weird. And I don't know if anybody in the band can specifically put a finger on where the actual flashpoint of that began. Ron may feel one thing, Mark may feel something else. I don't even know if anybody remembers, but I know the, the last show I did with them it was at Radio City 
in Orange County. And while we were on stage, and again, another small, tight, hot, sweaty club, fans climbing the walls. There is a part in one of the in the set where uh, Ingvi and I get together, uh, uh, you know, and we're doing a, a part in the song a solo or something. And Ron comes up behind, between the two of us. This is like a, it's a planned choreography thing. And and I must say that when I when I was originally starting with Steeler, Ron would say, "Show me some of the, you know, you were with Kiss. Show me some of them." And I'd show him the choreography stuff that that I showed, you know, Sean Delaney taught Kiss and Stars and bands like that. So you know, we started doing a little more choreography, which. Steeler wasn't doing when he had his original lineup. So Ron and I, were, Ron was having fun doing like choreographed moves. Like yeah. backseat driver, when we get to the end during the guitar solo, Ron and I would purposely look at each other from across the stage and run full bore and collide. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> butting our, our, our sides against each other, like two cars, you know, ramming in a collision and pushing against each other for, for ground space on, on, the, on the stage. That was part of the show. That was planned. We, and we you know that was fun, but get back to what I'm saying. You know, Ron at some point one of the songs would come up between or Ingve and I and put his arms around both of us, and he'd be in the middle. I have pictures of this. Well, Ron used to wear studded wristbands, and when he would break away and and, and we would split apart, Ingve and I, he would he'd step back and we would we move to the sides, and he'd come back up through the middle to continue singing to, uh, that part of the song. Well, these studded wristbands. The one, you know, if I'm on Ron's right and he's got his right arm around me, his, the wristbands are, you know, my he's he's moving. My hair is in the wristbands. Okay, so when he goes to take his hand back, he's taking my hair with it. My hair got caught in the studs in the wristband, and it would consequently tear some of my hair. So in the in the dressing room in the kitchen afterwards, I said, Ron, I ask you to please be a little more careful with. I'm all for the whole. I I'm in, I'm right with you with that. But when you go to pull your hands back and you're yanking my hair. So you're tearing some of my hair out there. He said, can I ask you to kind of address that? Be a little careful with that. He turned to me and he looks at me and he goes, don't worry, man. It'll never happen again. Mm-hmm. Just something about how he said that made me really uncomfortable. And, like, there's more to this than I'm not being told. Yeah. That's the only thing I could think of that when added together with the fact that the next day we were supposed to have a band meeting and there was nobody there except Mark, kind of really put the nail in the coffin. And here's Mark and I, like, walking around at the, at the rehearsal bar, or a place where we lived. I'm like, where's Ron? Where's Ingve? And he says, Ron got called away. He's, he's meeting somebody else somewhere or something. You know, I don't remember exactly what he says. And, and Ingve is, is also out somewhere. So it's fallen upon me to have to sit down and tell you that this, this whole thing is just not working out. And we're going to have to, we're going to just, you know, the whole band's going to break up. Or we're going to get new members or something like that. And I'm like, we're going to start over. And I was like, well, what, why? What's going on? Everything seemed, seemed fine. What, we, he says, I don't know. He says, it's just, it's just not working out. You know, when, when you don't know what to say, bands usually wind up falling on the uh, backpedal. It's just not working out kind of a thing. You know? Maybe they just don't want to come out and tell you why, but they're just going to say it's not, it's not working out. So I packed my stuff, and, and as I'm packing my stuff to move out, this guy comes walking in, this little stocky guy with a, with a scruffy little beard, I'm looking for uh, for Ingve Momstein or something like that, and and at some point Ingve walked in. He just happened to walk in with his girlfriend, with Kali, and he says, "I'm here to get your gear." So what happened was Ingve had met with Phil Moog from UFO, and I think Phil turned him on to the band Alcatraz, and it was Alcatraz's manager who came walking in, and he picked up Ingve's gear and his clothes and packed the stuff in the truck, said, "Goodbye, guys. See ya," and that was it. Took off. That was the last we well, the last we saw of Ingve. I guess that kind of answered your question as far as you know what Ingve's plans were at the time. He had obviously been negotiating behind the doors uh, without our knowledge, and and Andy Truman was their manager. Andy shows up, and he's there to pick up Ingve's gear. So he had already made arrangements to leave Steeler at that point and join Alcatraz. The day that I was packing up my stuff, in comes this guy, I, I, you know. I don't know who he was. And he says, I'm looking for uh, Ron and Mark. And I said, well, who are you? And he says, uh, my name's Mitch. Uh, I'm Mitch Perry. He says, uh, I'm here to replace Ingve. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. And at that point, I had my stereo on, and I was playing a Talus album. Talus, Live Speed on Ice. He goes, wow, what guitar player is that? That guy's amazing. I said, and he's hearing Billy Sheen do runs. And I, oh, yeah. I said, that's not a guitar player. That's a, that's a bass player friend of mine. The band was called Talus. 
That's Billy Sheehan. Well, history can bear out that uh, after Steeler at some point, Mitch wound up seeking out Billy Sheehan and wound up playing in Talis for a while. Well, Mitch became you know, like the hired gun guy around L.A. with all the different bands. But digressing, so uh, that was my meeting of Mitch Perry. I had moved out of the Steeler place and moved down to, uh, to Venice, and I was living there. We were making plans to, for me to, to put my own band together because I already had a reputation and, and uh, a good reputation for being in Steeler. I definitely was a crowd pleaser, and I could draw on my name. So uh, I guess you know, with Steeler, I just I was I found myself out of the band. That was that was that was all there was to it. Mark said it's not working out. You're out, and next thing I know, Steeler's doing a gig within the next month at uh, Perkins Palace with Mitch Perry on guitar and the guy who replaced me. His name was Ron Murray. Nice guy. He played with uh, Dutch Courage with Ralph Mormon, who was a singer in Daddy Warbucks with Punky Meadows and, and Mickey Jones. If you want to okay. degrees of connect the dots there, yeah. and then uh, but it was it was an ill-fated gig for Ron because he got locked outside before the show, and when he went to go back through the, the backstage door, security didn't believe he was in the band, and they shut the door in his hand and they almost broke it. Mm. So not a real good way to make your debut in Steeler, say. Uh, and that was pretty much the, what happened with Steeler. Everybody just, you know, Ingve went to Alcatraz. Ron reformed and kept getting new members until, I guess, you know, it got to the point where replacing members in Steeler was not, made Steeler look like an inconsistent band, you know, an unstable band member-wise. And I think, uh, to be honest, it would cast aspersions of looking at, at the band leader and saying, why are you constantly re replacing your band members? I'm not pointing a finger, Ron. I'm not accusing him of anything outright, not, nothing whatsoever. But when you look, step back and look at the picture and go, okay, well, here's this guy, and here's a great band, but he keeps going through members. Mm -hmm. You make the call. You make the judgment. Well, and it, was, it, was it basically Steeler switching members that led to Ron having the Keel band, or was that a different thing altogether? I guess it got to the point where no, the labels were not interested, from what I read, the labels weren't interested in, in a band that kept rotating members, obviously. So that's not going to work. So you might as well just call the band Keel. This way there's no question as to establishing who, who, you know, who this is about. You know, it's Ron's band, it's Ron's songs, you know, and, and rightly so for Ron. You know, if, if, if he's in a position to run his own band, you might as well name it after yourself. A lot of people do, and... and you know, there's Michael Schenker group, and this way there's no question over who the band is based, you know, around and who it revolves around. But he put together Keel. He got some really good players, you know, and he went on as Keel. Yeah. And it, boy, did you you didn't did you have anything to do with introducing him to Gene Simmons? No. Yeah, he, he just knew that I knew Gene and I knew the guys in Kiss. So when he finally got hooked up with with Kiss. I guess he must have said, yeah, you, you, you know where Rick Fox used to play in, in, in the band with me. And Gene probably went, oh, yeah, I know Rick from New York. So that, that I, I can only imagine that's what was said about it, you know, and then probably nothing more. Okay, and then, so Steeler led you to form Sin after that, correct? Yeah. Proving to the world that Nashville is about more than banjo picking and sister banging, this is the Decibel Geek Podcast. A lot of these major points in rock music history you were right there for the middle of. You weren't in Seattle in the early 90s, were you? Thank God, no. <laughs> that would have been like trying to hold back a tidal wave. <laughs> You're trying to yell at the ocean with rocks in your mouth. You know, it, it's just... No, I, I would have been fighting a, a, an untenable position in a losing battle because the sign uh, that, that uh, what we were... The kind of rock that we were representing was, was coming to an end. Uh, and was it as overnight as, as people make it out to be? Depends. Again, yeah, it's a subjective point of view. It depends where you were at the time and what time frames you were looking at. It, it seemed like it came in pretty quick. Yeah. Oh, at least within a year. And that's it, in, in the big picture. That's that's like a five minute thing. You know, right. it's it's on you. You know, the record companies that you know they see one band getting attention, attracting attention, starting to break through with what they were doing, and people were starting to like that. Then it's just like in in L.A. in, in the Hollywood scene. All the other bands see what one band's doing that everybody likes, and they all start copying it. Yeah. But, you know, the fashion kills itself once it starts, it takes on a life of its own, it feeds on itself, then you've got a hundred imitators 
then you have, you know, it's all homogenous. There's, there's no spontaneity. It's all gone. And the, once, the, once the new wave, whatever it is, begins, it sounds its own death knell because it's obviously going to be copied yep. and, 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 you know, mimeographed and, and cookie-cuttered by everyone around them trying to be the same thing. Yep. You know, trying to cash in on, on, on whatever is happening at the time. So that's just the way things are, you know. So what happened in L.A. with the glam scene, we had it in New York before that, and then, and then all of a sudden, you know, you had your Seattle thing. Everybody wanted to be Seattle. Everybody. Uh, then it's like, grow your hair out long, wear a bandana and a vest and cowboy boots and tight jeans. So let's let's get that look in. Yeah. You know, and that, that became like the, 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 the sleaze, sleaze glam, glam sleaze, whatever you want to call it, scene. Yeah. You know, and you had a hundred imitators of that, and it's like this cookie cutter process. All these bands looking at each other, going, well, "Let's copy what they're doing. Let's copy this. who's standing out away from the crowd and doing something different." Oh, originality know? is almost frowned upon as far as record labels are concerned. You know, but it starts with originality until everybody starts copying it. Yeah. Well, they say, "Oh, this made money, so we have to do it now." And, yeah. But uh, and it ha- and it happened again with grunge. I mean, you wound up having a million Pearl Jam, you know, wannabes, and uh, yeah. But well, let me get your take on this now. Well, you know, back then we had, you had L.A. for the for the 80s, and you had Seattle for the 90s, and then it seems the internet has really become the main thing now. Where it's like, in my opinion, it doesn't seem like you can have much of a scene anywhere because everything is just worldwide. Would you agree with that? Uh, that that's yeah. Again, subjectively speaking, depending on on personal taste, yeah, you know, uh, that that scene sounds about right. Uh, I talk with fans a lot on Facebook, you know, who are over in Europe. And, uh, of course, you know, Sweden and the, and the Scandinavian areas still have the, the glam sleaze thing going there. They're trying to revive what we did, you know, in, in the 80s. Looking back, they love that, and that's what they're doing. You know, there's, I got fans in Poland. I got fans all over the place in Europe. And, and, you know, I see what they're doing, and they're bleaching their hair, and they're wearing makeup, and, you know, like a lot of the bands were doing in, in, in the late uh, MTV era, you know, kind of getting that, that Steve Stevens Atomic Playboys look what Stephen was wearing at the time. It seems like the bands are trying to copy that, yeah. you know, now, because they didn't have it back then, but, you know, they miss it. They, they were never there, part of it, like yourself, and and uh, and want to do something to bring it back and revive it. So now it's like anything goes, and it goes anywhere, you know. As long as it's loud rock and roll and it, it, it goes, then, you know, people are going to like it, I guess. I don't know. What, how, what, what are you up to these days? Well, I've been doing the living history thing with... with you know, uh, based on my ancestry, and, and we were the first in America to promote that and bring it to the forefront. Uh, I've since, over the years, gotten a lot of recognition and accolades and awards and diplomas, so we're a highly awarded group, you know, various uh, places and, and uh, events, organizations are recognizing uh, the raising of Polish historic awareness. You know, there's lots of entertainers in the world who use their musical notoriety to bring attention to a cause of some kind that they believe in. Well, there's no difference with what I'm doing. I'm using my rock music notoriety and, and publicity to bring attention to, you know, Polish historic awareness. And, of course, it's not going to ring a bell with a lot of people. They're going to go, why? Why Polish historic awareness? Then when they see, you know, the knights with the wings on their backs and how they helped save Christianity in Europe when, when the Ottoman Turks were, were trying to take over Europe, their whole belief system, and how these Wayne Hussars helped save Europe, it's like, whoa, I didn't know about that. Well, of course, a lot of the information is suppressed in, in history books, and we, we don't know why, but there's some information out there, but it's very limited. And because it happened in Europe, it doesn't apply to American history. So a lot of people, you know, it falls on deaf ears until you really put it in front of their face. So that's why I got involved, and in this is my, my ancestry, and I happen to have some, we found out I have some noble bloodlines with very important people in Polish military history going back through the years. And, and it's like, I feel like I'm part of the legacy to, to bring this out in, into the American public. And we just got featured in a well-respected magazine on living history and reenactments in, out of the U.K. and England called Skirmish Magazine. We were featured participants in a, in a battle reenactment in Poland in 2010 in Warsaw, of a very famous pivotal battle in, in, that took place between Poland and Russia in 1610. The publisher of the magazine, after they saw me posting pictures on their, their Living History World, uh, LivingHistory.com website, started asking, "Tell me more! Tell me more! We've never seen anything like this. Tell me more!" 
So I, I gave him information. I submitted an article, and uh, next thing you know, it came out in the magazine. So we just got featured in that, which is a nice feather in our cap. Uh, I was featured in a, a recent a documentary, two documentaries. One is called uh, Path to Glory, which is the rise and rise of the Polish Arabian horse. And they, there's a segment about Poland's history of, with the horses and at the Wing Hussars. So I got filmed, and I have some footage in that. And there was the documentary based on the battle reenactment that we did in Poland. I mean, that, oh, jeez. You know, uh, it's, it's like, take, like they say, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> After 10 years of doing this, this grueling work, you know, finally getting some, some recognition, you know, so it's, it's paying off that way, not, not in the pocket. I, I intend to work on paying off in the pocket as well at some point, marketing and uh, mer merchandising this. Uh, but also, you know, uh, slowly toying with the idea of getting back into the music. Uh, since I got on Facebook, it seems like my popularity has, has grown more than it ever has before. Uh, promoters are saying, Rick, if you put a band together, we'll book you. You know, so it's a matter of me trying to find the right people. I've come across a gold mine of, of unreleased material I have in, in my collection of, of my music and stuff that I've done on a demo tape but never really put out. So I'm sitting on a virtual gold mine of material. I'd like to put a project together uh, based around my material and get that out there. But, you know, it's music these days is, like you said, with the, with, especially with the advent of the Internet, there is less protection than ever to protect your material once you've got it on disc. How do you sell it? How do you market that? Once it's out there, people start copying it and pirating it, putting their own labels on it, and selling your product, and you don't get anything. So I, I don't know how many money can be made on that. This is a conundrum that we're all trying to figure out. Exactly. Oh, and also, uh, you're going to be a part of these couple of books that are coming out. I know one's called is it Sting of the Tail, the Wasp book. Correct. Thanks for bringing that up. Darren P. Upton out of the UK contacted me uh, last, late last year and, and saw him on Facebook and he was doing something with Wasp and I said, I suppose you're going to be another one of these authors that's going to write a book on Wasp and, and I'll be left out of it. And like, you know, because that happens. People write books on Kiss, on early Kiss, and, and which, we'll, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And all these books come out and, and it's like, my story is not in there, even though I'm one of the people who was there before Ace Frehley was in the band. You know, I get... So I kind of get passed over by people who didn't do their homework and didn't know that I was one of the people there when it happened, you know, that Forrest Gump thing again. So Darren responds back, he goes, no, actually, he goes, I, I've been wanting to get in touch with you. He goes, you're, one of the, you're, you're like the original member, one of the original members in Wasp, and I'm writing a, uh, uh, an unauthorized biography, and I would really like to interview you. I said, oh, okay. So they, he went through uh, my management, went through the uh, contact, me through the protocols and channels, and we granted an interview, and I was on the phone with him for like three hours, I think, from, from England. And that's going to be one of the parts in his upcoming book, Sting in the Tail. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, all the ex and former members of the band. So, it's, again, we have, not to reflect back to Steeler, one central figure who, upon whom the whole band is based on, but you have, again, a guy who never keeps the same members in the band but constantly rotates them around himself. And I believe Randy Piper said, you know, once you start getting into the albums where it's no longer band photos on the album, but just one guy, there's just the writing on the wall, you know, about how much longer you think you're going to be around because it's not a band anymore. So, uh, you know, when, when Crimson Idol and all these other Wasp albums come out and it's only pictures of Blackie on the cover, Blackie on the back, Blackie in the centerfold, at any rate, Darren uh, interviewed me for the book, and that's going to be coming out. So we're all looking forward to that. And he's making great progress. He's already got his ISBN number for, for the uh, book publication. He's just tying up final uh, details with, a, with, a, with a, uh, another publisher, and hopefully we'll see that in the next few months. Uh, on top of which, after that, I got interviewed, called up, uh, contacted by uh, KISS author Ken Sharp, who has done books on Cheap Trick, John Lennon, and KISS. And uh, I said, listen, I'm doing a new book on KISS. It's early KISS from like the very beginning until around 1973. I know you were a, a, an important part of that. He's, I've talked to Lydia Chris, Peter's uh, ex-wife. I've talked to a lot of people who knew about Kiss, and your name kept coming up. So uh, this is like, this is your time to shine. And I'd like to talk to you about your time being around Kiss when they were forming. Uh, I understand you might have some pictures. And I said, I do. I did some digging. I'm going to be, we're going to be debuting never before, I, pretty much I think, never before seen pictures 
of KISS that I had taken while they were performing at clubs, uh, the Coventry in Queens, New York, and also the Sunshine Inn in Asbury Park in New Jersey, wow. as well as some of my pictures of KISS from the Fillmore East. So that plus my, my interview, my anecdotes, is going to be in Ken Sharp's book. So there's those two books as well that are uh, on, the, on the rock side of things that I'm going to be in the media about. And I'm currently in the process of finally working on my own book, which everybody's been saying, Rick, you've got to write a book. With all these stories, you have to write a book. Yeah, you should. I could do probably a whole series of shows on your history. Well, you know, it, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. Sure. Uh, you know, like, as long as I've got a memory about something. And it's... All right, well, I'm going to let you get back to it and uh, tell uh, Tara that I really appreciate her giving me, uh, you know, your attention for a little while. Sure. All right. Look forward to it, Chris. Always good. Dodge, dodge the hail and stay safe. Well, there you have it, folks. That's uh, my conversation with Rick Fox, formerly of Wash, Steeler, and Sin, and the Forrest Gump of Rock and Roll. And uh, all I can say is, wow, I mean, what a great history and what a cool guy. So I uh, enjoyed having him on. want to thank him again. And you're going to be hearing more of him on some other shows that we're going to do. And I uh, can't wait to have him back on the show again. And that was my cat you're hearing in the background, if you pick that up. Uh, follow us online at www.dvgeekshow.blogspot.com. Follow us at Twitter at DecibelGeekPod and Facebook.com slash DecibelGeek. Or you can email me at NashvilleRock at Live.com and tell me I completely suck and should hang this up. That's fine. I'll keep doing it just to annoy you. So, uh, again, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. No, I don't want to hear that Nickelback song again. Really? This is a Decibel Geek Podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.